Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we are going to stop just short of 316. We're going to spend that time next week. Don't you worry, we will not skip it. We're going to pick it up in verse 9, and this morning we're going to look at the second half of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We only looked at half of it last time, and in verses 1 through 8... Last week, Jesus dropped the concept of the new birth on Nicodemus. He explained the divine side of the new birth. Nicodemus thought he knew how people entered the kingdom of God, but Jesus told him he can't even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, Nicodemus is going to ask one more question in verse 9. He's going to say one more thing, and then he's not going to talk again for the rest of the conversation. And then Jesus, after that question in verse 9, Jesus is going to rebuke him. And then he's going to lovingly answer and explain to him for the next six verses. This is a moment for Nicodemus to, in a sense, be revolutionized in how he thinks. That he, he's convinced he knows what is right. He gets how this game is played, but he has, he has no clue. I mean, I went through that in kind of a similar way in basketball, in junior high, in high, in ninth grade. I thought, I'm really good at basketball. I get this game. I can play it. At the end of ninth grade, there was kind of a turning over at, for the basketball team at our little school. And the coach said, hey, next year you get a green light. You can just shoot from wherever you want. Just shoot whenever you want. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. I'm really good at basketball. You should be telling me this. All the while, my dad is like pulling out his hair behind the scenes. Like, you're ruining my son. But then I moved. God moved us from College Station to Waco. And I went to a school that was really good at basketball, which was fine because I'm also really good at basketball. In that first practice, I've never taken more balls off the face in my entire life than that day. And I was like, oh, this is what basketball really is. I don't even like this at all. This is terrible. But thinking your whole life, I'm, I, this is what I do. This is what I'm good at. And then to be just shown completely the opposite. You're not even like mediocre. You're bad at this. Nicodemus is going through this, but on an obviously more cosmic scale. This is how the world works. This is how God interacts with people. I am the one who then teaches everybody that to only be told you are dead wrong. You're not even playing the same game. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. So this whole section basically falls apart into two pieces. It all structures around Nicodemus's confounding him being confounded by the new birth. So it's going to start out with, how can this possibly be? Nicodemus' unbelief is the first section. And then the second section falls from it with Jesus explaining, this is how it can be. I am how it can be. Nicodemus says, I don't understand. This cannot be how this is. And Jesus says, yes, it can be. I am how the new birth is true. I am how the new birth can happen. So this is an example. So we're going to see a lot of things in here. John accomplishes much, not only just the theology that's in here about what is the new birth, who is Jesus, but also uh, how to evangelize. How do we evangelize in the Christian culture? We saw that a little bit last week, see a little bit more this week, but also the glories of salvation that God has extended to sinful people 
like us. So let's look at verse 9. We'll begin there. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He's in utter disbelief of the new birth. Disbelief in every sense of the term. He's confounded by it. He rejects it. He rejects the idea of the new birth. Instead of reacting like this, praise the Lord, I've been waiting so long to hear this. This puts together so many pieces of the puzzle in the Old Testament that I could not reconcile. Thank you for teaching this to me. Tell me more. Instead of responding like that, he says, entrance to the kingdom of God cannot possibly be the way that you've just said. That can't be the truth. I've never heard of this. Nicodemus is still clinging to the bad news. We talked about the bad news last week. The bad news says, do this and live. The good news says, Jesus has done this. Believe and you will live. But the, Nicodemus is clinging to that bad news. Jesus has told him about the new work. The, the new birth is utterly a work of God. To be into the kingdom of God is utterly a work of God. Sinners don't do anything to save themselves. The Holy Spirit regenerates them. The second birth comes about similarly to the first birth. A sovereign authority makes a decision on your behalf and brings life into existence. And this is good news for destitute sinners who are wretched and helpless and cannot do anything that pleases God. And if this is not the case, then we have no hope. And yet Nicodemus can't let go. He can't embrace the truth. Jesus' illustration of the second birth is stunning to us by comparing it to the first birth, like that it's just birth again. It's so simple and it's so profound that it, that it does thing. I mean, it, it sucks the, the air out of our lungs and it, and it crushes the witty rebuttals of our minds. Because is anyone unclear about the process of human conception and human birth? Now, here's some statements. Let me just throw out a handful of statements about human birth that nobody has ever said and that you have never heard. Let me just throw out a few. Yeah, before one day, you know, before I was conceived, I sat down with my mom and dad and had a heart to heart. And I decided to accept their desire to give birth to me. You've never heard anyone say that before. You've never heard anybody say this either before. You know, I ran from mom and dad's love for me before I was conceived and birthed. Until one day, I finally just gave myself over to them and let them conceive and birth me. You've never heard anybody say that. You've never heard anybody say this. The evangelist, I'm always going around and sharing with unborn babies. In, you know, birthing centers and in hospitals. Hey, hey, unborn babies, you just got to let go and let mom. <laughs> you just got to let go and let mom. I'm telling unborn babies that all the time. Or you've never heard a father of a newborn say this with utter shock and dismay, just saying, you know what? When my son was being born, he didn't cooperate at all with the birth process. Me and his mother were shocked. We were floored. That lazy kid just sat there and let her do all the work. He didn't do anything. You never heard anybody say that either. That's what we expect from birth. But so just stay in the illustration that Jesus chose to use. Because that's the illustration he chose to use. Birth. So, so let's stay in that. Have you ever seen or heard of a baby voluntarily cooperating with their moment of conception or their moment of birth? No. 
In fact, in the history of all of humanity, the baby's will has never been taken into account as to whether or not they are born. That's completely outside of their hands. So Jesus answers him and says this in verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus says, They cannot possibly be that what you're saying is true. And Jesus doesn't go, Well, let me explain what I mean. Jesus doesn't say, Yeah, you know, it, it kind of takes you for a surprise at first. Let me just kind of slow it down and back it up. No, what does he say to the guy? He rebukes him. You should know this. You're the teacher of Israel. You're not a teacher of Israel. You are the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus has a rank above the guild of rabbis, where he is the teacher. Of He's the authoritative teacher of the people. He has a different role in that. He was the established religious authority on the word of God. What he said about the Bible probably went unchallenged by most people. And what hope does Israel as a nation have if their master teacher didn't even understand the new birth from the Old Testament? What hope does the lay person have? What hope does the illiterate person have in that nation? If the master teacher doesn't get it. Now consider where Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee. He's a Sanhedrin member. Remember we talked about that being like congressman, judge, lawyer, pastor, theologian. And, and he is the respected teacher of the Old Testament. And he's being told that interest into the kingdom of God is just like a second birth. And he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe that. This concept is somehow not even on his radar. Now take note. If the teacher is blind, then the students are doomed. We have to understand that. We all do understand that. That having a Bible teacher who forces his grid over the word of God and then interprets and teaches through that grid means that the people have effectively been given a death sentence. That all they're hearing is a man's interpretation that people will remain distant from Jesus. If a teacher's ultimate authority is not God's word, then he is doomed and his people are doomed to be blown in the direction of wherever the winds of society blow. And the winds of society always blow toward the direction of boat-sinking icebergs. Always. So that's where Nicodemus has led the people of Israel as the teacher. It should be no wonder to us that when we wrestle with this topic that we don't initially believe it either. We don't want to look at pride on Nicodemus and go, man, yeah, that guy was truly lost and out. To, I mean, we're, we're not that, that. No, we are. I mean, think about this. Just think about humanity at large. What other religion teaches that the achievement of the afterlife or whatever the good life is in the future, that, that the achievement of that comes like birth? What other world religion teaches that? They do nothing to bring it about. God does everything. None. No other world religion teaches that because all other world religions are invented by humans. And humans are not actual, naturally inclined to religious notions of earning or, or not earning our way into a deity's favor. We are inclined towards the notion of earning our way into a deity's favor. That's where we drift naturally. And Jesus is saying something totally opposite of that. We're not naturally inclined to accepting a deity that earns his own favor 
and then we as humans get grafted into that. That's not what we naturally go to. We are wired by the fall for gods that we choose. We are not wired by the fall for a God that chooses us. Our wiring doesn't go that way as fallen human beings. So we can sympathize with Nicodemus as a lost individual, that even within the church, the majority opinion of how sinners entered the kingdom of God conflicts with Jesus' illustration of the new birth. The majority opinion in the church today and throughout history says that we cooperate with God in our salvation, like a baby could somehow cooperate with their birthing process. See, the majority opinion says that we have inherent within us the ability to cooperate with our second birth. That the new birth is somehow a synergistic act. You know what I mean when I say synergistic? Synergy is, is, is effort, working with, sin meaning with. So you're working with it. But it's, it's not that because birth is not that, right? Birth is not synergistic. I've seen it happen four times. All four times the babies did not cooperate. And in extreme ways, they did not cooperate. So it's a monergistic act. The mother alone is doing all of the work to bring that child into life. The same is true for us in the new birth. Salvation is monergistic. God alone is doing all of the life-giving work. So here's what we need to do. We need to sit down next to Nicodemus and listen to Jesus instruct us on these things. We need to hear what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus isn't some poor, pathetic, ignorant, first century man. No, he is you and he is me. He is us. So we need to sit down and listen to the message that Jesus gives to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus is quiet from here on out. Jesus is going to speak, and we need to listen to what Jesus will say. So this is where it falls apart, or not falls apart, not in a bad way. This is where it splits. This is where how it lays out the text. Nicodemus has said, how could it possibly be this way? This cannot be the way. And Jesus says, you should get this because you're the teacher of Israel. And now he's going to substantiate how it can be this way, why it must be this way. And he's going to say that the answer is him. This is why we should accept the new birth, because it's who Jesus is. How can it be? Jesus is how it can be. That's what we're going to look at in these following questions. Jesus says, I am how they can be. So Jesus is going to rebuke him for not knowing this already, but then he's going to show compassion on him by not just saying, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things, and then just leave. He stays there and he explains further by expounding upon himself. He's going to say that he is the witness of the new birth that he is the son of man, that he is the true bronze serpent, and he is the new and eternal life. It's going to be an explanation of himself. This is Christology for Nicodemus. So follow along. The first one, who Jesus is, he is the witness in verses 11 and 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus, you should believe what I'm telling you because I have witnessed it. I am the witness to it. I have firsthand experience with the new birth. I have unquestionable knowledge 
of the new birth because I am the witness of it. Not a, a the witness of it. So Jesus is not saying that Nicodemus' predicament is that he's ignorant or that he's stupid or that he's just, his capacity's too low, his brain's too small. That's not the problem. He's saying, Nicodemus, your problem is you are stubborn. Not that you are incapable of grasping this. In fact, it's often the most brilliant people who refused most vociferously to repent and to believe in Christ. New Testament tells us that. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 23. Paul's looking around and he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So Paul says, where are the brilliant people? Where are the important people? They're not here because they're looking to find it through their own wisdom. And we're preaching it through what they would call folly, which is just Christ and him crucified. But the Old Testament says this as well. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Not let the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight declares the lord that's where real boasting comes from not in your wisdom not in your riches not in your might but in knowing god that's what nicodemus is going to be schooled into you know it's interesting though if you look at that verse 11 he says we we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen who who is the we jesus is just there by himself with nicodemus right is he using we because Nicodemus approached him back in verse 1 by saying we? We know that you are a teacher sent from God. Is that why he's doing that? Is Jesus just being ironic? Yeah, my we knows a lot of theology too, bro. Is he being ironic? So theologians are all over the map on this. So they're saying that we could be the Trinity. We could be John the Baptist and the disciples that have now followed Jesus. We could refer to the Old Testament prophets. It could refer to everyone who's born of the Spirit. Or it could just be kind of the, the tradition of the royals of the day that you would say we uh, or, or use the plural for more impact and forcefulness. But here's a Bible study note that we need to take from verse 11 that we can learn right now is that the example of using, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but there are open-handed and closed-handed issues in the Bible. I think that metaphor can be a bit unhelpful, almost exceedingly unhelpful. Because what that says is that the Bible is full of things that matter for life and death and eternity and meaningless trivia. And you have to decide which one is important for life and death and eternity and that which is just kind of meaningless trivia, fun to know, doesn't matter, has no bearing. See, I think that there are degrees of importance, right? That we can't say every, it either matters eternally or it doesn't matter at all. We have to have more speed than just stop and go. There are more tick marks on that spectrum. And this is a kind of verse that falls into that. 
Do we need to spend hours and hours debating and figuring out this we? Well, ultimately, no, because we know who is Jesus who talking about. He's himself included in that we, right? So we know at least he's speaking for himself as Jesus. And then we can get the gist of the text from that. But this we does indeed matter. I think from the text, the best thing that we can say is that he's using a sense of kind of the irony of it. Because Nicodemus came saying we, not saying I, because he didn't want to be too open and transparent. But also that using the plural for added weight. That Jesus is communicating that he has an intimate relationship with the one who causes the new birth. And what did he say earlier? Who causes the new birth? The Spirit. You're born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm a part of those inter-Trinitarian conversations between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I come from there. So there's authority in that we. He's the only one who can physically bear witness to the truth of the new birth. And in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus, I've told you the truth of entering God's kingdom in earthling language. Some, some church history, people throughout church history have said that God, when he speaks to us in the scriptures, is talking baby talk. He's, he's babbling to us like little babies. He's making it plain for us. I, I've used the language of earthlings and you still don't believe. What hope would you have if I go further than that? If I go into the heavenly things. All Jesus has done was point to Nicodemus what he has in his own Bible in Ezekiel 36. Like we looked at last week. Jesus is saying, that's all I've done. All I've done is show you what your Bible already says. God's already communicated this concept through the written word. Nicodemus, you've been reading that written word your entire life. That's all I've showed you to this point. God's communicating the new birth through his incarnate word now. He has it in the written word in Ezekiel 36, but now the incarnate word, which Nicodemus can touch, Jesus himself is speaking about it now, and he doesn't get it. He already doesn't believe the divine truth that he has. What good would it be to give him brand new, fresh divine truth. He's already failing at Nerf T-ball. What good would it do to go back to the early 90s in Ranger Stadium with Nolan Ryan on the mound, put him in the batter's box and say, hit it when he throws it. You can't play Nerf ball right now, man. Why, what good would it do to put you in that kind of situation? You have no concept of this, which is why he's having to slow down with him. And if you've ever been in a place where you're teaching something even as basic as baseball to people who have no concept, it can be maddening. I once tried to teach in Haiti. We were doing this camp. We were in Haiti, which shares an island. There's only two countries on the island. One is Haiti. The other one is where all professional baseball players come from, Dominican Republic. They're all from there. How did nobody cross over the mountains and say, hey, that's first base, that's third base, you stand here like, nobody has apparently crossed over and told them that. Because when we tried to teach them, it was, it was like speaking a foreign language. I mean, we were speaking foreign languages. They speak Creole and we were speaking English. But I thought, for sure, sports, we get it. And I, and I learned the French up to four. This is un, deux, trois, quatre. First, second, third, home. This is how we go through it. And it just could they had no concept. So we had to slow all the way down. I thought thinking, yeah, we'll be playing five wiffle ball games by the second day. No, 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 no. 
we were still just going, run the bases. Here we go. Hold the bat like this. Don't kick the ball when it comes to you. That's not allowed. That's soccer or football, as they call it. Totally foreign concept. Now, if the new birth to Nicodemus is actually a known concept to the Old Testament, but he has no recollection of it, he has no understanding of it, then he doesn't have the foundation to understand the deeper things that Jesus will reveal. So he's going to slow down and tell him more about his own Bible. Now, take a step back for a minute. Before we get into Jesus expanding more on who he is, and, and talking more earthling talk to Nicodemus. Is this how you evangelize? Not in the exact way, but is this the concept? What is Jesus doing to Nicodemus? Is he building a common rapport with him to establish a motive of love that Nicodemus would know that no matter what he says, it's coming from a posture of love? Is he doing that? doesn't seem to be doing that, at least not the way we would do it. Or is Jesus rebuking a powerful, authoritative, educated Jewish leader that he's known for five minutes for not understanding the Bible, and he still has not stopped to ask Nicodemus his name? Still hasn't even engaged in a single pleasantry, any small talk. Imagine this scenario. You're sharing the gospel in a culturally Christian area like the one we live in, right here and you tell the person about being born again they don't get it at all and when they question how it can be true you say how in the world do you not already know this would that be your response that's Jesus' response but, but that's how Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus I asked myself this question when I was studying this text if I was teaching a class on evangelism and I was going through all the different kind of circumstances that could be in. Like, this is how you do with people who, uh, of the Christian cults. This is how you do with people who are coming from a pagan background. This is how you do with people coming from a secular background. People who are coming from a, a culturally Christian background. And the language barriers and all these things. A full-on evangelism class. And then I have a student in there named Jesus. And he stands up and says, yeah, for the culturally Christian group, this is how I would do it. And he explains kind of the Nicodemus scenario. Would I fail him in the evangelism class? for saying that this was the tack that he was going to take? I, I might have, because that doesn't sound like how you should do it. But this is Jesus, the Son of God, very God of very God, no sin whatsoever. I think we should maybe reevaluate how we share the gospel, because he says in verse 10, you do not understand. And he says in verse 12, you do not believe. That's what he says to the guy. Jesus here is our example of a true Christian witness. Now, obviously, he's God. He knows Nicodemus' heart. We already established that at the end of chapter 2. We know that. But there is still a level of bluntness. There is still a level of frankness. And he's calling himself in these first two verses of defense, 11 and 12, the witness. And what is the one job of a witness in a courtroom? To tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's all a witness does, right? When they witness gives their testimony, which is interesting in Greek, the word for witness and testimony is the same word. What are they supposed to do? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's what Jesus is doing. It's no more complicated for Jesus than it should be for us. So that's the first example. He's the witness, but he's also the son of man from heaven. Look in verse 13. 
back to the story of where we go and Jesus is qualified. What makes Jesus qualified to tell anyone anything about things that are heavenly? Verse 13, because no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. That's what qualifies him because he can tell people what heaven is like and what heaven says because he was from heaven and descended down from heaven. No one who, let's ask this question. Who can enter into God's heaven? Only those who have the equivalent righteousness to God. You have to be as righteous as God to enter into heaven. So who is the only person who has ever walked on the face of the planet that has equivalent righteousness to God? Well, Jesus. So he's the only one who can effectively speak to what is in heaven. And he calls himself the Son of Man. He calls himself that frequently. In fact, throughout all four Gospels, that's the most frequent name he uses for himself, the Son of Man. And he didn't make it up. He just borrowed it from Daniel 7 when he told Daniel to write that down. Daniel 7, 13 says this, I saw in the night visions. So Daniel's having visions of, from God. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days. That's God. That's Daniel's way of speaking of God, the father, and was presented before him. And to him, Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So why should Nicodemus believe what Jesus is saying about the new birth? Because he is the son of man who has come from heaven, prophesied about by Daniel, who is given from God the Father eternal kingdom with eternal rule. That's why he should believe. That's a pretty good credential for those who are going to speak authoritatively the things of God. You know what I think? I think it's at this moment that things start to click for Nicodemus. He doesn't speak again, we know that. But I think at this moment, now he's pulling up Bible references that are unmistakable. Nicodemus would have definitely known the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days. That he, he knows this is Messianic language. I feel like this is the moment. I don't know this for sure. But this man is a scholar. He's a Bible theologian. He gave his whole life to studying this. And now what Jesus has done is he has connected the new birth to the new covenant. He's connected the new covenant to the prophecy of the Messiah and to then the Son of Man and then to the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is following this now, in my mind. Nicodemus doesn't speak again, but if he had allowed him to, I think he would have spoken up and been like, okay, wait a minute. And now Jesus doesn't even let him speak. Jesus jumps in before Nicodemus can say anything, and he jumps in with a plain as day Old Testament story. Not a prophecy, an Old Testament story that's so exciting and kind of fantastic that all kids can remember it. He just goes back to numbers. In verse 14, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the soul must, so must the son of man be lifted up. I can just see Nicodemus saying, so wait, wait, you're saying that you're the son of man? Wait, wait, you're saying that the son of man has to be lifted up like that serpent was? On a, he has to be hung on a pole? The same son of man to which God gave the eternal kingdom to? That one has to be lifted up on a pole? And before we can tie all this together, we need to refresh ourselves on this story. I don't know if you remember Numbers 21, but it is a 
whopper of a story. Numbers 21, verse 4. If you're familiar with numbers or you haven't caught us in the Old Testament survey, this is Israel wandering in the desert and just complaining, and then Moses protecting them from God's wrath or letting them endure it for a little bit, and then they get protected later. And this is one of those scenes that complain against God. God punishes them. 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. So they're just in another leg of the journey, and they start whining. Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wait a minute. Is there no food or just worthless food? That's, what the, that's the rationality of complaining. We don't have any food, and we hate the food we have. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Yeah, you think so? We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten that when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now that story has been taught many, many times for don't make God mad, because if you make God mad, you're going to get bit by a snake. And then if you get bit by a snake, you don't have a serpent because the paw on the pole was Moses. We teach it as a moralistic story, but what did Jesus just use it as? A messianic story. Now, why? What's going on here? Let's look at the bare bones of it and take ourselves kind of out of the Veggie Tales version of it. The bare bones of it are what? The people sin against God. You don't care about us. You're not good. You don't keep your promises. You, they're insulting the very nature of God, not just saying our lives are uncomfortable. You are not who you say you are. Then God punishes them because that's what God does to all rebels. And then the people realize what they've done. We have sinned. And then what do they do? They go to the mediator, who is Moses, the one who stands between them and an angry God. And they say, please bring redemption for us. And the mediator does do that, goes to God on their behalf and sets up a way for them to be saved. And how are they saved? They're saved by a bronze serpent, a, a fake little statue being put up on a pole and lifted up. And then when they look at it, they, when they're dying from the venom, then they stop dying and they live. The venom is in them. It's already there. And when they look at it, then the venom stops doing what it does and life is given to them. Now, have you thought about that moment? Have you thought about how many people didn't look up to the serpent? We talked and teach this story as like once it went up in the air, everybody looked and everybody was fine. But how many people were like, no, 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 just keep trying to suck the venom out. No, no, where's, where's the medic of our camp? We've got to go and we've got to get it out like that. Or just, you know, I, I think I can just kind of muscle my way through. It doesn't hurt that bad right now. I'm going to be okay. Instead of getting out of their tent, crawling on their belly, where they could get in with an eye shot of the bronze serpent lifted up. How many of them didn't do that? And what was the solution? The solution was, in a sense, nonsensical, right? You're dying of venom. Go look at a statue. Does that track with medical practices of the day? No, of course not. 
But it was an act of faith. It wasn't like once they looked at the serpent, then a, then a beam of light would come out of the serpent's eyes and then fill them and then suck the poison out. It was an act of faith. You display faith by doing this thing that seems ridiculous, then God heals you, instantaneously gives you life based upon your faith. And that's what Jesus says that he is. They had to look up at a bronze serpent, which was what? They didn't say, look up at, a, look up at a, uh, an open scroll of the Bible statue. And it didn't say, look, look upon Moses or look upon, we're going to make a little miniature Ark of the Covenant and put it up there. What was the serpent? The serpent was the thing that was killing them, right? So what was the bronze one? It was a symbol of their sin and death. Now, what is Jesus on the cross? He's a symbol of our sin and death. That's where we should have been, right? We should have been death. We should have had that consequence. He's a symbol of that. So what they're looking at is they're looking at a serpent without venom. And then what we're looking at is we're looking at a savior without sin. The serpent wasn't, re the bronze serpent wasn't really a fiery serpent with venom. And Jesus died a lawbreaker's death and looked like a lawbreaker, but wasn't really a lawbreaker at all. That's what Jesus says that he is, that he has to be lifted up. He says it twice elsewhere too, John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, repeating exactly what he already said, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And then John 12, 32, he says it again. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is, message is the key to the gospel. Jesus is the son of man. And if he is not lifted up on the cross, then there is no hope for sinners to enter the kingdom of God. No hope of ever being born again. We die from the venom. If he's not lifted up so that we can look and believe. It has to happen, and according to Jesus' own words, I think Nicodemus got the message. Because where is he in John 19? At the cross, taking his body down, or asking for the body after it's taken down off of the pole, lifted up as a symbol of sin, but which is really the only way to salvation. Jesus, the Son of Man, has come from heaven, has given authority over the kingdom of God, by God, and by looking to him, the Israel, as the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent in the wilderness, that's what gives new life. Everyone is walking around with a death sentence. Everyone was getting bit by those serpents. Every human being is born on spiritual death row. But looking to the Son of Man lifted up as a symbol for our sin, that's evidence of the new birth and thus saving faith and thus citizenship in the kingdom of God. Looking at the bronze serpent lifted up in faith brought life temporally. Looking at the Son of Man lifted up in faith brings life eternally. It's almost as if verse 15 isn't even necessary, but Jesus is just going to go and make sure that Nicodemus really gets it and to make sure that we don't miss it because verse 15 says this, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Belief in Christ is the evidence of, of the new birth. Eternal life is synonymous with the new birth, right? You get birthed into life. So the new birth, you're birthed into eternal life. I already have an ending life. I already have a temporal life. What I need is an unending life, a permanent life. That's what the new birth does. And belief is how you engage with being born again. Like a freshly born baby crying for her mother's milk, 
So are all of us who cry out to Jesus for salvation. This is how R.C. Sproul put it. He said it like this. He said, If you have in your heart any affection for Christ at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit in His sweetness, in His power, in His mercy, and in His grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and raised you from the dead. If you have any affection for Christ, Sproul says, it's because the Holy Spirit went to the graveyard of your soul and made you alive. So you are now alive to the things of Christ and you rejoice in the kingdom into which he has brought you. And you know what I find interesting at the end of our passage here? Nicodemus begins the conversation with verse 2 with, we know you. And then Jesus spends the next 13 verses saying, no, you don't. That's essentially what he did. He said, if you knew who I was, then you wouldn't be skeptical about what I'm saying. You wouldn't question or scoff at me. Why, how can this possibly be? Or what am I supposed to do, jump inside my mom again? If you really knew who I was, you would have believed. Now, should we take this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus to mean that it's authentically Christ-like? That in a Christian culture, we should be in some way lovingly skeptical when people say that they know Jesus? Is that what we should take away? Are, are we being like Jesus when we press into people's actual beliefs when it comes to Jesus? Are we being like him when we do that? I, I think we do need to do this in our culture. Yet without being cynically arrogant, but with genuine love for mankind, because what we don't want is just a comfortable conversation. Okay, good. You said a new, uh, enough keywords. You spoke enough Christianese to where I can just kind of, like, you're a Christian, I don't have to mess with this. That, that brings me a lot of comfort, but it could be eternally condemning for that person. So do I love them enough to, to push through that? Maybe not even that conversation, maybe the next one. But at some point, to push, what do you really mean? Because Nicodemus came in saying a lot of good stuff. You must be from God. You can do miracles. You, you must have God's hand on you. And Jesus didn't go, wow, great. You, must, you, you get it. You believe. He pushed in clearly but lovingly for the good of Nicodemus' soul. Isaiah 45, 22 says, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That was the verse that was used by God to convert Charles Spurgeon, my greatest hero in the faith. Some, the way it happened was he was uh, in England and it was snowing and nobody could get to evening church and the closest church that he could get to as a 15-year-old kid was a Methodist church. And nobody else showed up except for an old lady, one other person, a shoemaker, and then Charles Spurgeon at 15. And the shoemaker goes, well, I guess a pastor ain't coming. And he wasn't coming because he got snowed in. And he got up and he just railed on this verse, Isaiah 45, 22, and it hit him like a ton of bricks. Look, look unto me and be saved. Anybody can look. Anybody bit by that serpent could look. Even if you had to be carried over to where you could see it, you could look and see. Every single Israelite who looked at that serpent believed that they would be saved. Those who did not look did not believe. They knew what Moses said, and they could talk all about it. Yeah, Moses made this great statue. And, and if you get bit, man, just make sure that you look at it. But that doesn't mean that that person did indeed look at it. They could talk all about it. But they died from the venom if they didn't look up, if they didn't believe. 
If they looked at Moses, it did them no good. If they looked at the tabernacle, it did them no good. If for some possible way the priest could break the law and open it up and let them look at the Ark of the Covenant, it would do them no good. What did God say? Look at the serpent. And then you will be saved. Then you will have life. So what are we doing? The same is true for us. Looking to your pastor won't help you. Looking to your parents, looking to your friends, looking to your culture will not help you. Looking to all of those things for life will kill you eternally, guaranteed. Nicodemus' question, how is the new birth able to be? Jesus' answer is, I am how the new birth is able to be. I am God come to earth. I am Daniel's prophesied son of man. I am the true bronze serpent. I will be lifted up as a symbol of the humanity's sin and death, and I will conquer death from that posture of death. And you will have eternal life when you look and believe in me. That's the message of Nicodemus' story coming to an end. Nicodemus, or Jesus said rather in verse 7, you must be born again. And then he said in verse 14, you, the Son of Man must be lifted up. That second must is what makes the first must possible. Jesus being lifted up in our place as a symbol of our sin, suffering our death, that makes it possible for us to be born again if we look to him and believe. And it's as simple as that. That's the message that we proclaim. That's the message that we take out. That's the message that I hope that we eventually get a lot of chances to share with those apartment complexes over there on Redbud Trail. And that's where we end with Nicodemus. We pick up with verse 16 next week. We're going to look at that verse. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're, we're Nicodemus. We think we know and we feel really educated. On, on either side of the cross, we always feel like we're doing everything right and we have it pe figured out when we're running from you and living in sin and rebellion and death. But even after coming to Christ, even after being saved, being born again by the Spirit, we still have moments where we're like, yeah, we, we know it. Instead of just sitting quietly and listening to you explain who you are through your written word encapsulated or your incarnate word, Jesus, encapsulating your written word in the Bible. So, Father, let us come away with the humility that as apparently uh, Nicodemus came away with. Let us, let us believe what you say and take it at face value. Father, help us to be lovingly bold in evangelism because we live in a town where there are more churches than there are many other things. That we have churches on every corner, multiple churches on the same street, churches with an eye shot of churches. Help us to be lovingly skeptical when people say that they know you. Not that we are cynical, not that we hold ourselves up as knowing everything, but Lord, help us to, to push in to their understanding of the gospel so that they might know for sure, we might know for sure whether or not they are saved. And if they're not, that we can give them the good news. 
We can open up the simple scriptures and show them the truth. Help us to be faithful with that. Not arrogant, but faithful. For the good of their souls and for the glory of your name. And just in the likeness of your son that we've been taught by Jesus how to do this kind of evangelism. All the while knowing that we're not Jesus, that we don't know people's hearts, we don't know their souls, and eventually we do have to take on a grain of faith their profession and let us do that well and love others well in that, knowing that we are all saved by the simple act of looking. Look unto you, Lord, you have said, all the ends of the earth, because you are God and there is no other. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to have communion again in the style that we had two weeks ago. We didn't have it last week because the fire alarm went bananas. We didn't have time to get it all ready. We're going to do it again this week, and this is how we're going to go about We're going to do like we did a couple weeks ago. The elders are going to go down the rows and pass the elements out and give them to us. And then we're going to take them all together. And last week I read from, uh, before we took the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, I read from 1 Corinthians 11, and I want to read again from it, but I want to read the first part, or I want to read the end part that we didn't read last week when it comes to um, how we eat the bread and drink the cup. Well, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let each person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we, ju we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So we need to take this in the right way. The primary, the primary uh, instance for how we take this rightly is, are we a believer? Have we repented of our sins and trusted in Christ? If that's not true, then we shouldn't take this. That would be an unworthy way. The second way for those of us who are believers is, do I have any unconfessed sin that I haven't dealt with, either with an individual or just between me and the Lord? Obviously, all sins are between us and the Lord, ultimately. But other individuals, Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if you're coming to the temple to worship and you realize that you have something between you and your brother, stop what you're doing and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and worship. So if that's us, then we may need to let it pass us by until we can get reconciled with that brother or sister. Or use this moment even just to confess sin right now so that your heart is referent in the right posture towards God, knowing that it is forgiven in Christ so that we don't take this as kind of a, a bitter pill, that we take this as a gracious, friendly reminder from God. You are a sinner, but you have been saved. You have been washed. You have been made new. So that we don't have to dwell upon our sin, we can dwell upon the righteous sacrifice of Christ and the grace that we have received. So the men who are going to pass it out, go ahead and come forward. And they're going to walk down the aisles and pass.